Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Okay, hey everybody, Mark Bianchi here from the Cowan Energy team. Uh, we've got another installment of our energy transition uh, podcast series currently with a focus on carbon capture. Uh, I'm joined by my colleague, David Deckelbaum uh, and uh, Sam Arnold from Carbon Path. Uh, Sam's gonna talk to us about their new business uh, that's, uh, that's involved in um, plugging and abandoning uh, existing oil wells with, uh, with the goal of creating carbon credits and, and hopefully helping the environment. So Sam, thanks so much for joining us. Um, maybe you could give us a little background on you know, who you are and, and how you got to be in this position Tell us a bit about Carbon Path, and we'll go into some Q and A. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate uh, the time and being on here today. Uh, good to kind of be back in the energy fold a little bit. You know, taking a couple of year hiatus. As far as my background, you know, I started off as an engineer with Exxon. Did that for a number of years. Spent some time on the cell side, and then really the last call it twelve to fifteen years in a portfolio management role on the buy side, primarily covering energy related stocks. I uh, decided that that probably wasn't a long-term career objective for me, decided to, uh, you know, see what else was out there in the world. And I always felt like I was at U of I in the late 90s, that's University of Illinois. Mark uh, Anderson was actually developing um, Netscape based upon Mosaic, which was the world's first browser developed at U of I. And I actually worked in the computer lab, and I felt like I missed that entire trend by going into oil and gas. And so when I left, I was like, kind of had a whiteboard, said, what are the big trends? What are the things that I don't want to miss this time around? The, the mega trends that are going to be happening in the world. And a couple of those that really fascinated me that, that I did a lot of market research on were, you know, blockchain technology, as well as the carbon markets. And so as I got deeper in the carbon markets, I was just fascinated. It, it kind of was akin to like buying bonds in the 80s. You had to go through brokers or, you know, be big enough to go through develop a project developer. And the market just seemed ripe for disruption, you know, and it, it kind of was operating on a kind of a, a 1980s technology platform in a 2020 environment. So uh, that was kind of the, the genesis for Carbon Path. Uh, but in general, it's trying to just solve a simple problem. There's a methane emission problem, which contributes a significant portion of the overall greenhouse gas emissions in the US. And it's pretty easy to solve it because it's coming from a bunch of wells that don't really make money for anybody. And it doesn't take much to incentivize the company to permanently shut and abandon them. And it won't have much impact on the consumer either because it only represents about 5% of US production. So I'll pause there. I said a lot. No, that's great. I mean, maybe you could talk about how you guys got started with the business, like who came up with the idea? What was the timeline to kind of, uh, you know, get to where you are now? And, and what's the what's the path over the next sort of 12 to 24 months? Yep. Yep. So I normally take my boys on a kind of like a guy's trip every year. And we went to Houston and happened to have uh, lunch was, I guess, February of 21, maybe with um, Matt Steele. Uh, the former CEO of Bruin Oil and Gas. And, you know, we were talking about, I was looking at maybe 
looking at tax credits for drilling oil and gas wells. But like I said, in the background, I've been doing a bunch of work on, on blockchain and the carbon markets. And he discussed that, hey, you could probably actually like pay operators to shut down like the dirtiest, uh, oldest wells. And that would probably have a pretty measurable impact on the environment. And I think he kind of came up with it originally by looking at the overall market cap of the EMPs in 2020 and saying, I think like Google, Amazon, and Facebook had enough cash on their balance sheets that they could have just bought all the companies and said, okay, fine. If you don't like oil and gas, buy them all and shut it down. And so that was kind of the, the joke kind of genesis of it. But as we talked about it more, it was like, hey, there's something here. Uh, so, you know, kind of kept in touch. Uh, obviously, uh, as I was working on the project, got my compliance of former employer's approval to work on it. And, um, you know, we started uh, really raising money in earnest, um, basically this uh, spring and finished that funding, uh, but kind of really have been working on the idea since um, over the last, call it a year now. We're currently working on a pilot project. We're developing our tech and we're funded, we believe for the next two years. Sam, can you go into what what is the pilot project entail right now? Um, because I think you gave an outline of, of a lot of the focus of, obviously we can create a carbon credit or carbon offset by plugging an oil and gas well. You brought up blockchain before and we'll get into that later, uh, certainly on, on the revenue side, but you know what what is carbon path consuming capital for? What are you spending money on? Uh, because it, it appears as though the business model is to compel uh, oil and gas companies to shut in wells, perhaps you would pay a nominal amount to do that. And then you would be selling the carbon credit generated to, in theory, maybe the Amazons of the world that you outlined before that could have outright bought these companies. So what is your pilot intending to, to demonstrate to the market? Right. So really it's being able to put, basically do the process um, start to finish and put everything on blockchain. So we're building on the Celo blockchain, which is one of the most environmentally friendly. And there's been others that are using that. Uh, somewhat would be a quasi-competitor would be uh, Adam Newman's uh, Flow Carbon that just raised 70 million to do something similar, but they're trying to take and kind of jam existing credits from registries onto blockchain. We're kind of building our credits and putting everything on chain from scratch. And so, you know, the question would be, what does that buy you? Why put it on blockchain? And for me, the, the beauty of blockchain is the transparency of transfer of ownership. And uh, right now, anytime you buy or sell something, it's always held in the kind of either government or, or a single document that somebody holds somewhere, right? So it's it's very difficult to ascertain value or something like on a carbon credit, it's been sold once, twice, 10 times. And so for me, uh, something like a carbon credit where you wanna ensure that it's only been bought once and then either retired or traded, and it's only been generated one time, is a perfect use case for blockchain. And one of the biggest problems that I found when I was looking at the carbon market uh, for credits is just the ability to prove that the work actually occurred. So a lot of these would say, okay, well, this is a forestry project based in Uganda or something and cut down these trees, but 
you know, now we're not. It's like, okay, well, I can't really go to Uganda and look at it and know this exact Latin wall, this, this exact forestry. So it's very hard to uh, measure and verify. But by putting everything on blockchain, we can. And especially with oil and gas, given it as highly regulated as it is, you know, you're going to be able to put a state or federal permit on chain that says, yes, this well was actually plugged and abandoned. Um, yes, here's the third party engineering work from, say, like a Ryder Scout or Netherlands Sewell that said this was the reserves that we're leaving in the ground. So really anybody will be able to go look at our credit and look at any specific carbon credit or carbon token that we've created and verify themselves, go through our calculations and verify that the work has been done and get great comfort that this was actually something real and was only bought or sold once and it's only only has a single point of ownership. Does that make sense? It's all focused on building that technology. Sure. Well, I, I think that that's probably something that gets casually missed as the world thinks about the carbon capture economy um, is that you're identifying a problem, which is uh, how, do you, how do you verify that the work has been completed? You know, how do you, how do you know if a, if a direct air, air capture facility, you know, retired 800,000 tons of CO2? How do you know if, if you know, a carbon sequestration uh, project was, was successful in that? So it, it sounds like there's, there's a proprietary technology angle particularly around blockchain that that almost is required as as this sort of nascent market develops here that that you think is, is something that one there's a business case for what you're doing in creating carbon credits but there's also like a scalable technology aspect to what you're doing that, that would apply to verification is that fair it is yeah we hope to be more we think that other kind of third-party verifiers the bear as the gold standards although we don't think we're competing like head-to-head -head with them they're more focused on the forestry and aspect of the carbon market, but we think, you know, industry is the source of the majority of actual emissions. So we want to be more the the industrial um, source for carbon credits. Can, can you just, uh, just one last one for me on this is just, can you like at a high level, it, maybe talk about the benefits of, of a cello based blockchain uh, versus some of the others from like an environmental perspective, because because obviously there is a there is a critique in how energy consumptive blockchain can be. Uh, mm -hmm. So so how does Celo differentiate there? Because that that's obviously been a a, a common pitfall uh, as we look at the crypto world that's supported by blockchain that consumes more energy than several states consume. Um, so, right. so yeah, 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 that's right. So there's really different types of mechanisms for. Uh, understanding whether somebody owns something on blockchain, proof of work or proof of stake. So proof of work is basically a great race to solve a puzzle. And so you have these massive computers and computer farms that are running sometimes off, you know, natural gas from wells in the Bakken or Texas or Saudi Arabia or wherever. And their huge energy sucks because you have millions of computers trying to put out, you know, trillions of hash rates per second to be the first guy that solves the problem. And once you solve that problem, you get all the spoils from it. So it's a winner take all in, and it's that's highly intensive from an energy consumption standpoint. What proof of stake tries to do is say, hey, we're just gonna nominate, you know, depending upon what protocol it is, say a couple hundred computers, and you guys are gonna solve the puzzle and whoever, completes it, that's fine, but everybody should complete it. You vote on it, 
if more than 50% come up with the same answer, perfect, now it's a block. And so you have very limited energy intensity with a proof of stake mechanism. But how do you verify that they're not bad actors? Well, what you do is you have them stake, and that's thus the proof of stake. So put up their own capital of that whatever currency it is. So you know whether it's Celo or or um, you know if it's any of the other ones that, that there are out there. You know you you basically have to put up call it anywhere from ten thousand to a hundred thousand dollars to be able to stake. And if you do anything that you get called out for, if you get caught being a malicious actor, they basically penalize you by taking away that stake solo. So you have a financial incentive to be a good player in the game. And therefore you have only a very small subset of computers that are racing hard to solve these problems and trying to solve these, these hashes at any given time. And thus their energy consumption is significantly, significantly lower. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Thanks, Sam. So there's lots of proof of stake out there, but we think Celo yep. actually is just a, a better platform where people are really trying to migrate and become, well, we like it because it's trying to solve a problem in general where they're trying to be more of a, a crypto that can be utilized by people on their smartphones. And that really democratizes the use of crypto to basically second and third world, which I think is where it's really needed because you kind of take away government interference, you take away the ability to kind of uh, take a, uh, a bribe or whatever it is. So, you know, when you look at, uh, I think what's left a lot of countries behind versus say, you know, the United States or others, it's really our system of laws in contracts and the ability to uh, not get shaken down at, at every step of the way. And so I think blockchain can really help uh, level the playing field in that respect. And so I think it, it can really be uh, a game changer for basically countries that have, that have fallen behind. So I'm, I'm a huge believer in the sell of blockchain in general because of that promise in addition to it being a very low energy intensive and thus more environmentally friendly blockchain technology. Does that all? Yep. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yep. Yep. That helps get certainty around authenticity and, and paper trail as it relates to these credits. But I think there's a whole nother question that people have about measurement. Um, and you know, whatever we're claiming the credit is representing, is it really representing that much CO2 emission? Talk to us about like what, what problems exist in the market today with, with that and how, you know, what you guys are doing might be a little bit more precise measurement or might solve some of those, those uncertainties that are out there. You know, one of the big questions you always have is additionality where would this be undertaken without the credit? And so, you know, a lot of uh, credits that were put on blockchain recently were kind of older credits from, from another verifier that were used for, uh, in, in conjunction with a lot of like uh, wind and solar projects. And so the question becomes, well, is that really additive? Those projects probably would have happened. Utilities were going to build those things irrespective of giving the credit. So it's not really additive. So there, there's been a problem from older credits from that standpoint. We think ours is completely additive just because if you if you understand the way the oil and gas industry works, like wells are very 
very rarely actually plugged and abandoned. They're just sold down the food chain to a less lesser capable operator that usually has a lower cost structure and kind of make that work where, you know, I, I don't know if I've gone over this with you guys in the past, but, you know, there's 4.3 million wells in the U.S., only 800,000 produce anything. And half of those produce less than a barrel a day. So you have 400,000 wells that are basically just pumping one barrel a day and a lot of water and a lot of uh, associated gas and a lot of that's leaking. And so we know that without our credit, these wells that are producing 15 barrels a day or less are gonna keep producing for decades. So we think it's completely additive. The second thing is how do you, you know, verify it? And I think that's unique to each problem. So they're trying to get technology with like drones and stuff like that. So say if you're, um, you know, go back to your Ugandan uh, forest, you know, trying to fly over and measure that with some sort of frequency or satellite measurements. So technology is coming to make that better. But um, as you as a credit buyer, you have no visibility into what exactly part of the forest you are saving. Um, so if you're a project developer and you're Amazon and you're you're working with them on a bilateral agreement to buy the credit, you may have pretty good insight into these are all the coordinates and this is exactly what we're going to save. And But as you as a third-party buyer in the aftermarket or secondary market really don't have any visibility into that. So um, by us putting it on chain, everybody who's a buyer or just an interested party will be able to have the exact same information. So uh, it really democratizes the ability for anybody to buy a credit and feel good about it. So I think within forestry-based and, and nature-based credits, being able to measure it and verify it is advancing with technology and will get better over the next 10 years. But only the biggest, largest buyers right now have really any insight into how that's occurring. But for us, everybody will have the exact same insight because it's pretty, it's pretty easy, especially if it, a well's been producing for five to 10 years. And David, you'll know this, you know, getting the last 10 years of production is pretty easy to verify. It's, it's already is gone down on its, on its, uh, hyperbolic or uh, exponential decline curve. And, and it's pretty easy to guess, you know, what a well is going to do in years 11 and 12 versus one through 10. I guess, can, can you talk about the, now you highlighted before, you know, the population of, of wells that you'd be going after. And, and I guess, is it, it sounds like you've already done the math on like the arbitrage between being able to create the carbon credit by shutting in that well versus the revenue that that well would produce, like given prevailing commodity prices. Like you came up with a genesis for this business model when commodity prices were quite a bit different, you know, a couple yeah. of years ago and certainly last year. So when you think about like the addressable market today, you know, you think you can frame or is there still how much of an arbitrage exists between the carbon credit that you can create off of shutting in a well versus even a well that would produce a barrel a day, you know, that's still $120 today. So, right. uh, you know, how do you think about like that arbitrage and, and how willing do you think like that, that sort of captive source of, of what you're using for feedstock is? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. And, you know, initially as prices started increasing, we were considerably, uh, concerned about that. Uh, but as we did the math and really looked at, 
it really depends upon, you know, the wells that are calling 15 barrels a day are much more sensitive to that price of oil. But when you start getting down to a couple barrels a day, it, it's not that sensitive. So, you know, you maybe go from you need $20 a ton to $40 a ton. Uh, so, you know, our pilot project, we're selling at 30 and that makes enough money for the operator to be able to fund uh, the plugging and abandonment, all the land uh, reclamation for the landowner for the surface location, as well as take our fee and um, have a little bit left over that compensates them for what they would have been able to sell the well for. So our idea is really at the point of, you know, say, you know, a mid cap getting ready to sell on an oil and gas clearing house to a small mom and pop, we want to prevent that transaction from, from occurring. Don't sell it for twenty or fifty thousand dollars or ten thousand or even free. Actually, go ahead and plug and abandon it. You're benefiting for a couple of different reasons. One, you know that that liability is never going to come back on you because you're going to permanently get rid of that liability. And then two, you know that you're doing the right thing for the environment because not all, but I'd say the majority of smaller operators don't have the financial capability where if there's leaking valves, there's some sort of casing, you know, uh, failure, they can't repair that. They don't have the financial means. So they'll let it either just sit or they'll continue to produce. And then those become methane leakers, pretty significant to the environment, as well as they can water up above, because everybody was always mad, you know, about fracking and how that can contaminate the source, you know, fresh water near the surface. And it can't if it's a new well that's proper cement job and casing, but an older well that's been around for 10, 15 years, that's been intermittently shut in, has bacteria, can form H2S, you know, that's one that can't have communication with uh, the surface and as well as groundwater supplies. So for me, even if, even if you lost a little bit of money doing this, if you're a mid-cap, it's the right thing to do. Can you talk about, I guess, how you envision, maybe you can talk about the pilot, just sort of like soup to nuts. Like, how do you get involved? Like, when, who, do you, who do you call when you pick up that phone for the first time? You know, how are you advising the, the individual operator? I mean, it sounds like the population that you're going after would, would otherwise be public companies that more or less have these abandoned wells, not necessarily the mom and pops or, you know, uh, families where it's, it's been on like their, you know, thousands of acres of farmland that, that perhaps they know nothing about. I mean, is, is that sort of the, the, the population that you're going after? And then maybe you can just like walk us through casually how you guys get involved in the process and then and sort of like what expertise you're lending along the line. Yeah, so the, we think there's like our kind of sweet spot is about 200,000 wells that are producing between like 15 barrels a day and one barrel a day. And those are the ones that are most likely to get sold at auction to a mom and pop. So we want to stop this mid cap from selling to that mom and pop. So our target uh, audiences are the SMID caps. And we've, you know, talked about this with the majority of them. And I think they're all intrigued by that ability to have something else other than just sell it for a nominal amount and kind of take the P&A liabilities off their books. But knowing that one day it could come back to them. For example, in the Gulf of Mexico, yeah. you know, it, it, can, it can always come back to the previous operator. And 
and it can't right now, but you know, that could change in the future. So it is something I think that EMPs should think about is, is a longer term risk from climate change. So for me, getting that permanently off the books by doing the work that, that should be done is paramount. And, and so that's who we're going after. And so we make the calls, people say, yeah, here's a batch of wells. And the nice thing is we can actually, and you know this, David, we can do the desktop analysis and say, yeah. hey, yeah, you got here's these wells. Of wells. Yeah. We, right. yeah, yeah, here's a bunch of wells we think qualify. Why don't you do yeah. these? Right. And um, so we can push. And, and in our website, investors are going to have the ability to say, hey, I want to see company XYZ. How many wells do they have that could be uh, useful in this process? Hey, why do you need oil and gas? You could generate $250 million of carbon credits if you shut down all these wells producing less than 15 barrels a day and took carbon credits. And, you know, here's the actual API numbers. I mean, this is all public information and we can get that, right? So yep. we're going to be able to, to have that. So, you know, maybe if, maybe if an EMP is not too keen on doing it, we can get the investing community to kind of push and say, hey, no, no, this is a good idea. This is only represents a couple percent of your production, but it's a pretty big NAB uplift if you sold them. And taking that PA liability really helps the, the NAB value. So we think that um, we're going to work with the companies to identify wells, but then also investors can too. And then once those wells have been identified, you know, the company, the if it's a field level manager, let's say for Devon, they can go get on our website, they can put in API numbers, or they can just do a search and we can tell them, hey, this is, we think, how many tons of CO2 that you would, of credits you would generate. And this is about the amount that it's worth. And then if they want to open a case file and really do work, you know, they have to have permissions to do so from their company, but then we'll start our work on it which is uh, all the verification and calculations and starting to prep it and put it on chain. And then as the work is completed and we get that final permit, then we can mint the token. And then, um, you know, if they want us to sell it for them, or if they want to take them and put them in their wallet, if they're sophisticated enough to do so, they can do that too. So we're trying to work with them to get them the financing that they need. So it really would just be a working capital problem for the EMPs to shut down the wells, yep. but hopefully only by a few month lag. Got it. So, yeah, so for the, for those listening, you know, the API number you're, you're giving, you know, basically a unique identifier that uh, for every oil and gas well, but you're almost using like a grassroots or almost an activist project to compel people of, here's the information that's out there. Here's the opportunity. Now let's get the conversation started. So it sounds like there's, obviously a benefit of removing a liability, but you're also giving someone an extra bullet in their sustainability report um, that, 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 they, that they've created this value. Um, and, then, and then I guess it, it's for, for carbon pass revenue model, are you just taking a commission? Is it like a flat fee for the service? And how, how are you guys thinking about that as you scale? Yeah, we're just taking a percentage commission of the, the credits generated. So we're kind of all alongside you basically where we're taking the credits in kind so we're have to sell them and and we'll have either you know kind of the same if it was an ipo kind of the same protections for the, the company as well where we can't go just like dump them on the market the next day 
so to protect the pricing of it. The good thing is, is I think one of the things we haven't talked about is I think the market's going to be very large and deep uh, for these credits. If is just being aware of market participants, most companies in the S&P 500 have now made uh, climate pledges to go carbon neutral, either by, you know, call, pick at your number, 2030, 2040, 2050, depending upon uh, the entity. And I think that's an attainable goal in the long term. I think in the short and medium term, companies as they've made this goal or starting to look what they can do within their existing operations to lower their carbon footprint or finding that there's limited scope to do so. So I think they're going to be the bridge in the short term. And so we think the demand for credits is going to explode. And we don't think it can be met with nature-based solutions. So I think it's fine, you know, for a lot of investors have said, yeah, we want you to focus on climate. And that's the right thing to do. And I believe that, but also the financial community isn't going to uh, tolerate, you know, 200, 300% of free cash flow to go do so. So it has to be done in a, in a more measurable, in, you know, kind of way that, that doesn't impact these guys' balance sheets or the company's balance sheets. So I think as they do that, they're going to need credits that are reasonably priced and actually have a real impact. And so the thing that I really like about what we're doing is it solves a huge problem because one, you know, it stops methane emission and it stops the additionality of new orphan wells because they, they'll never get to that point. But once you've actually done that, you're providing billions of tons of potential credits. They call it a, around a $30 price point which is significantly cheaper than, you know, biochar or direct air capture or anything that's out there that, that isn't really yet a proven technology. I mean, this is proven technology. Our costs are very specific and we know what they are um, and, and it's not going to change over time. So by being able to provide like a huge kind of dispatch curve of credits of $30, I think you just keep the movement going because if we ran out of credits and then people had to go carbon neutral by paying three, $500 a ton, I think a lot of management teams would balk on their pledges and this would kind of fizzle out. So I think we're really enabling companies to have that bridge to actually get to their, their carbon neutral goals because I don't know, say a waste management, they have to change out their whole fleet. They're not going to do it in two years or five years, but 30. Yeah, they can probably do that. And the grid can probably keep up with that. So shutting down, you know, 600,000 wells that aren't really producing that much oil and gas, but are the bulk of all methane emissions. It just makes so much sense that I, I don't see why this shouldn't be like, it, to me, it's like the lowest hanging fruit of, of the climate change initiative. Like everybody should be all hands on deck going after this. The credit that's generated on a 15 barrel a day well, like what are what are the streams of CO2 or CO2 equivalent mm -hmm. that that are contributing to that? So you mentioned methane. Are those 15 barrels also being counted as sort of avoided barrels that'll be combusted in the economy someday? Like just talk to us about what yeah. what builds up into that credit. Yeah. So this is kind of what I think is kind of slick of what what we've done as far as um as I've seen other credits 
and and viewed them like their their methodologies to generate require a lot of capital investment up front. And that's hard for a lot of people to do. So, you know, you see in some of these uh, orphan wells where, you know, they want you to go try to like put a tent around once you've found the, the well site and try to measure the methane. We think that's great and it gives you a very scientifically exact number, but unfortunately nobody's gonna do it. And so our thought is this needs to be able to be done with desktop analysis before you get into the field and actually start spending a dollar. So the way we've constructed it is to be able to do that, to actually spur action, but do it in the lowest cost initially as possible. And so what I mean by that, well, we know that in general, through studies with Environmental Defense Fund and others, that on average about 10% of methane gets emitted out of every oil and gas well that's over 10 years old. And so that's just occurring. Now, some might be 20%, some might be seven, some might be three, right? But in general, that's, that's the average. So if that's called 20, 25 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than carbon, you know, a 10% leakage times 20, if it's a pure gas well, that's, that's uh, 200% of basically the scope three, meaning if you just burn that CO, assume that every molecule of gas wasn't leaked as methane, but was eventually burned as a scope three emission, you would have one number, right? And then if you said, okay, well, part of that's leaked out of the well, but it's a much, much more potent greenhouse gas, that's another. So we're really trying to solve the one where it's leaking out of the wellhead, because that's really bad, but we measure it using the conservative number, which is basically reserves left in the ground. And we take reserves, because if you look at a reserve calculation, it's based upon pricing points and economic limits. And we wanted to take pricing out because we don't say, oh, was our credit so good at $100 oil now that it's dropped to 50? So we want to take that out of the equation. So we're only looking at production either over the next 10 years or till it drops to a barrel a day. Now we know even if it drops to a barrel a day, there's 400,000 wells in the country that are producing less than a barrel a day. So it would continue to get produced. But by making that cut off a barrel a day, you're taking price out of the equation and then we did a just time cut off of 10 years, you know, even though, as you know, some of these wells have been producing for 100 years, just because we wanted to keep it in a lot more line with forestry and not give credit for too far out in the future. So we're really either taking the, the smaller number of either 10 years or down to one barrel of production. And when you look at whatever the oil and gas that's left in, and you're, we're taking samples, which will also be on chain. So you'll know the um, chemical makeup of the commodity. You can assume if it was all gonna be burned, how much CO2 was gonna be emitted into the atmosphere. And that's what we base it off of, but we're actually being, we think conservative because the majority of those wells, it would never actually get to a tailpipe of a gas plant or to you know somebody's car, it would end up being leaked to the air as methane 
and it would actually do a lot more environmental damage than what we're calculating. So we're solving the problem, but we're doing it in a much more capital efficient manner and giving you a much more conservative answer. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's helpful. So you mentioned the global warming potential on methane 25 times. I mean, I think, you know, that's a hundred year GWP. You could argue if you use 20 years, it's like 85 X. Yeah. Um, I mean, is there, is there a standard or, or is that just you guys like taking a conservative approach like you did with the, the modeling around, you know, down to one barrel? Like, is there, is there a subjectivity in, you know, what GWP you select? Yeah, you, we could have used 80, but and which would make make us much more conservative, I guess, in our number. Um, but we we just picked 20, 25, because we're saying, hey, that's over 100 years, as you said. So we just thought that was the most conservative answer. But it still tells you we're probably we're probably only taking half the credits that we actually should from like a greenhouse gas perspective. Mm-hmm. But if, but if you take it times 80, then you know it's obviously much more conservative. Ask a potentially cynical question. Sure. And since you started looking at this, especially since ESG became front and center for many of these oil and gas companies, and a lot of them have net zero targets out there, particularly the ones that are sequestering or capturing CO2. Others are out there trying to solve, you know, and this is just on the oil and gas exploration production side, trying to solve for at least scope one emissions. Have you seen an acceleration in plugging abandoning wells that you would have otherwise gone at over the last couple of years from these companies that are theoretically, uh, you identified a situation where if there's a company X in the public realm that has a portfolio of a thousand wells and 300 of them are these older vertical wells. At this point, I, I suppose that there's some horizontal wells out there as well, like that are producing at these levels, but I would imagine the percentage of scope one greenhouse gas intensity that's coming out of that subset of wells that you're targeting is 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 a large portion of each company's total scope one, um, uh, at least of 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 methane uh, emissions out there, right? Because the rest would be inherently hooked up to gas infrastructure, gathering infrastructure, and many of these wells. They were drilled at times where there just wasn't any infrastructure in place, and they never built it there because there wasn't a reason to. Have you seen, you know, these companies actually getting after those wells more earnestly over the last couple of years, or do you think that that population of wells has has largely remained the same? I feel like they've there is some companies that are starting to do a little bit more P and A work, but it's a pure cost to them, and I'm thinking specifically in the DJ. Um, but in general, you know, if there's if there's ten thousand wells drilled in the the U.S. every year, you know another 10,000 kind of age into our methodology. So the, the pie is kind of growing every year. And so to me, the simplest answer for EMPs rather than spending that 50 or $100,000 historically is to sell it to another operator and wipe your hands clean of it. So That's 50 to $100,000 today, like spot cost of plugging a well, like getting a right. job in there yeah, per well. Yeah, right. Right. And then you, um, or so you could pay, you know, $100,000 and say, hey, look at us, we're good ESG uh, stewards of the environment. Or you could sell it to a mom and pop for $20,000, take in $20,000, not have to spend $100,000 and get the liabilities off your books. You know, like Shell, they were small fellows for getting out of shale oil, but I mean, they just sold it to ConocoPhillips, like nothing changed. I mean, 
those wells are still getting produced and drilled. So it's kind of a similar phenomenon. Yep. And to me, that's like the, the easiest thing for an EMP to do. And I don't, I don't see that changing, especially as kind of the, the pie grows. And, and from, you know, wells kind of aging into this as we drilled so many wells over the, the last 10 years with shale. So it, it's becoming a bigger and bigger problem. And a lot of these companies, if they looked at their plug and abandonment liabilities and pulled them forward to today, those numbers would be extremely large. And so I think it is a looming potential problem for the EMPs as well. And, and so the easiest answer is to just get rid of them to somebody else, but we're providing the ability to at least offset some of that pain. So if you're going to have to pay a hundred thousand dollars to, to plug it, and you could have taken 20,000 and you're really down 120,000, right? But maybe if you could get 80,000 back, maybe that's more tolerable within your capital program. Yep. And is there just a, you know, without naming names, is it, is it the, the SMID cap publics that you would be mostly going after? Is there, are the majors kind of taking care of this for themselves uh, or is, is it really kind of the, the EMP world is your oyster right now? Or, or is there, there one market that, that makes the most sense? Yeah, I would say it's really anybody. I mean, we're working with, uh, you know, some, some environmental groups that actually own uh, land that has some abandoned wells on them. We're looking at, you know, stuff with mid caps, with larger caps. It's, it's all across the board. And, um, you know, I think most people have this problem and there's one, um, in particular, there, there's a study done by Environmental Defense Fund, which I referenced before, but it kind of broke down the number of operators that own these wells. And you're, you're talking, um, you know, in the, the thousands yep. of different operators. And there's also been some work done by another investment bank that's actually looking at, hey, there's these wells that were supposedly sold, but once again, the transfer of custody that I talked about earlier in the blockchain helps with, you know, the paperwork is lost in the courthouse or something somewhere where it's still showing as these are, these wells are, they're still owned by a public company and a public company hasn't, you know, doesn't have any records that they own them, but nobody does. And so, you know, there's that risk that the governmental entities come back and say, Hey, you need to, you need to fix these because you're still the owner of record as far as we're concerned. Is there an additional tangible financial benefit from RAND land reclamation or, or rehabilitation? I mean, it's something that, that I think you all have talked about, but you know, we've seen, I guess, other tax credits, I guess, in, in certain jurisdictions for kind of like reclaiming sites or environmentally rehabilitating these sites. Is that, is that something that would be applicable here as well? Um, yeah, I mean, it could be, we're trying to keep it simple and just trying to have the credit kind of take care of all of that. But there are what we call the, the, the side benefits from that, where, you know, we're going to work with various environmental groups to suggest, you know, obviously in the leases, it's up to the landowner and the service landowner of what they want to do. So they may want that, that well pad, cause they may want it for a parking lot for farm equipment or what have you. But there is the case to be made that, hey, you're hooked up to the grid here. Maybe it makes sense to put up a small uh, wind farm or solar site or something because you actually are connected to the grid at this location. So there's, there's lots of things you can do 
with the surface that we're going to suggest, but we're not trying to take credit for it. And at the end of the day, it's going to be the, the surface owner's uh, decision. Well, kind of getting close to time here as a way to wrap it up, Sam, you're a professional investor for several years, and now you, you've spent time sort of looking at this market. If you were to put your professional investor hat on and, and sort of take lessons learned from going through this process, like any, anything that you would share about, you know, what investors should be asking companies about their, um, about their carbon targets or their, their scope one, two, three emissions reductions, uh, any, any high level thoughts on, you know, risks or opportunities for, for companies in, in oil and gas, just, just kind of curious if you've got any new perspective, having, you know, gone through what you've gone through. Yeah. I'd say if it's broader companies that have made some sort of climate pledge, just the roadmap to actually getting there and, um, what it's going to take from a, a capital standpoint or a percentage of free cash flow, or is this just going to kind of get captured in the, the DDNA charge as equipment gets older and they go through the regular cycle. So companies that seem to be are taking various different uh, paths to get there, uh, some more aggressive than others. So I, I would certainly be curious about that as well as, you know, the bridge when they, when they are buying credits or doing offsets, like what their philosophy is on that. And um, if there's any way that they have any transparency into those credits, because I think right now it's, it's very difficult. Like how do you procure them? So they like said the the Apples, the Googles, the, the Amazons of the world can have entire teams dedicated to procuring credits and working bilaterally with project developers. and and get 50 page like project memorandums and, and have great depth and understanding of what they're doing. But as you start kind of going down the food chain to smaller and smaller companies, they're not gonna have that ability. So just how do they ensure that, the, that what they're buying is real? Those would be my things for, for the oil and gas specifically, uh, you know, just they're, they're plugging in abilities, maybe what the, what the assumed discount rate is for that, the timeline, you know, there's, there's been some uh, pretty, I guess, well-publicized companies that, that have some pretty significant abandonment liabilities out there that have been discovered where they have a lot of wells. So they're just kind of cycling on and off, like producing one barrel for like one day a month, just so it, it doesn't get into the uh, abandoned wells and then forced to be shut in by the uh, regulatory authorities. So that could be a huge liability if that got pulled forward. And probably lastly, I would think that, you know, how do they feel about the long-term risk if they are selling wells to a smaller operator? You know, if there is some sort of disaster, you know, say you sold your wells to somebody in the Barnett, you know, there's some sort of leak in it. I don't know, let's say, is has a, an accident somewhere because it's in a pretty metropolitan area that could they could they be held liable for that and, and what's you know lawyers are always going to go after the deeper pockets and if it's a, a smaller less capitalized entity could they have the target on their back and just how do they think about that because to me um i think they as soon as they sign up the dotted line that they sold it that they their hands are wiped clean of it which historically has been true but as this problem grows worse you know, with, with orphan wells and potential for any type of environmental uh, kind of 
liabilities going forward? Could they could they be held responsible for that? Yeah, no, no, that's all that's all great perspective and and stuff that people probably should be putting on their question lists at, at conferences. Sam, this has been awesome. Thanks so much, uh, Sam Arnold from from Carbon Path. You can get um, get them on the website there, carbonpathgroup.com. And uh, Sam, thanks so much. We really appreciate the time. Thanks, yeah. Sam. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Thanks, David. Really appreciate the time. Good to, good to see you guys. Always. Best of luck. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.